together. Thank you for the fellowship we've already experienced in our group time and for the sharing that has gone on there. And Father, if there's one here among us who has something that she would particularly like to share today at our luncheon, I pray that you would press it upon her heart to do so because we're always all blessed when we hear how you're working in someone's life through the study of your word. And so I would just pray if that one has something to share, she would step forward and and just do so when we give an opportunity for that over at our lunch. Father, we do want to thank you for this time of year in which we remember that unto us a child was born and a son was given, and the government one day in the millennial kingdom will be upon his mighty shoulders. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became a man, left the bliss of heaven to enter into this sinful world, to become a man, to die in our place. And we can never, ever thank you enough for that glorious truth, the greatest truth that man has ever known. That's why it's called the good news, the gospel message. And may we be open and bold to share that message with all who come into our circle of influence during this Christmas season. Again, now I ask that you would hide me behind the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ and help our ears to hear that which you have for us as we look at Genesis chapter 9, the Noahic Covenant this morning. We we pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Global flood of the days of Noah was the single greatest trauma to have ever affected this earth. Ever. The only one that will surpass it is when the earth is destroyed by fire. And uh, we won't be around then. We'll be around, but I don't know where we'll be exactly. I guess we'll be in the New Jerusalem when that happens. But at the time of the flood, every living, air-breathing creature, aside from those that were in the ark, every other one perished. Only eight human beings survived in all the world. For them... If you can imagine the traumatic experience of living through a torrential downpour. You know, when we say it rains cats and dogs, this was, I mean, that was nothing like cats and dogs. I guess you'd have to call that elephants and giraffes or something because it was something we have never seen. And it lasted for 40 days and 40 nights with absolutely no relief. And also of having experienced all the tossing and turning upon a shoreless sea while the sounds of volcanic eruptions and earthquakes and all kinds of other previously known explosions were going on, along with perhaps the terrified screams of both humans and animals, filled their ears. And also, if you think of Noah and his family, being confined inside a boat with all the representatives, pairs of representatives of air-breathing animals inside that boat for 378 days without any communication whatsoever from God, all these things and others that they experienced, which we can only guess at, must have left their mark of trauma upon Noah and his family members. You know, people we meet every day and talk to, they too, I guess almost everyone in this room, probably everyone in this room, has been wounded, if you've lived long enough particularly, you've been wounded, scarred by some kind of an event or circumstance which has happened to them or to us somewhere in our past. Noah and his family had not only probably experienced personal physical loss in that all of their other relatives who were yet living at the time of the flood had perished, right? 
I mean, cousins and aunts and uncles, and even if Noah had any other children, which I, you know, we don't know if he did or not. Uh, but regardless, all of the other people, all their other friends and family and relatives perished. And also their pre-flood home had been destroyed by the uh, flooding waters. But they also experienced tragedy of literally worldwide proportions. Not only was their extended family gone, but so too was the entire civilization which they had known. Can you imagine that? I mean, everybody, the village, the town, the city uh, in which they may have dwelled was literally wiped off the face of the map. All familiar sights were gone forever. Instead, a completely new and strange and far less friendly atmosphere and environment met them as they began their new life in an essentially all-new world. That's what we looked at last week in our uh, lesson entitled A New World Order. It would be difficult to think that having come through such a unique and totally devastating trauma would not have left some kind of scars on, you know, emotional scars on Noah and his family members. They undoubtedly had their wounds of this past experience upon them. And these wounds would not only include what they encountered in the flood itself and, you know, all the sights of death that would be prevalent everywhere around them as they left the ark and then descended down the slope of Mount Ararat to the valley beneath, but also those scars, those wounds would have included the 120 years preceding the flood when they were you know, for 120 years being rejected and ridiculed and scorned and laughed at by the whole rest of the world. So most likely it was for the very sake of these wounds or those scars that that, uh, were on Noah and his family that God repeated himself so much when it came to the matter concerning not only the flood but also his post-flood covenant promise with man. Even though probably one of our greatest frustrations that we have, not only with the Bible, but particularly with the book of Genesis, is that God just simply does not give us, you know, we, we feel frustrated because he doesn't give us enough information in, those, in the first few chapters that we've been looking at. Particularly last year, you know, when we looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he just, you know, in, in one chapter he tells us about the creation of the entire universe, So we're left a little bit frustrated because we have all kinds of unanswered questions. Many of you would come to me with some of these questions, and I would just have to say, I really don't know. The Bible doesn't say. So we're a little bit frustrated about that. But in contrast, we find that he gives us a whole lot of repetition regarding his covenant to Noah following the flood. In chapter 6, God said to Noah, in effect... I am going to establish my covenant with you. That was in 6.18. In chapter 8, God purposed in his own heart the conditions of that covenant. And we saw that as we looked at, as we looked at verses 21 and 22. Remember, it says the Lord uh, said in his heart. And those things he said in those verses, he didn't say verbally to Noah. He was saying those within his own triune Godhead. And now in chapter 9, he actually will speak verbally the words of the covenant to Noah and to his sons. So we find that, you know, regarding this covenant, this Noahic covenant, God really repeats quite a bit. You know, he gives us a lot of repetition 
regarding the covenant. So why did he spend so much time repeating in the Bible the terms of his covenant with man? It certainly wasn't for himself that he did this. Rather, who would it be for? It would have been, first of all, directly for the sake of Noah and his family, and then indirectly, because we read the scripture, it would be for us. Noah and his family had been traumatized, many of us, from past experiences and trials and tribulations have been traumatized. Are left, we're left with scars. They had survived an incredible, unbelievable holocaust, which, Lord willing, none of us will ever encounter anything that can even come close to what they went through. They were probably shocked, to say the least, by the sights of their new surrounding and also were very likely more than just a little bit apprehensive about their future. Above all else, above everything that they needed at this point in time, they needed to be reassured not only about their physical safety in this new world environment, but also about their spiritual safety. Was God going to perhaps one day send another flood and wipe them out, you know, as he had done with all the other people? Was he still going to keep his promise that he had made with Adam and Eve about sending a coming redeemer? Remember, the seed of the woman. Was he going to keep that promise? Uh, Or had the promise itself perished along with the world as they had known it? Or was it still in effect? So Noah and his family members, as we've said, had no doubt been affected. They probably seriously affected in their souls from the traumatic encounter with God's wrath upon sinful man. Knowing that they also were sinners, they needed to have reassurance that they and their future descendants would survive, that God would not again wipe out everybody. And they needed to be reassured that they would still have the prospect of the coming Savior, the Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, the Genesis 3.15 promise. So they needed these reassurances, and these then are exactly the issues which were addressed by God in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. If I had my overhead transparency, you would now be looking at our outline, which you can really remember very easily because it only consists of two parts. First of all, we'll look at the substance of the covenant and then the sign of the covenant. Can you remember that? That's easy. Substance and the sign of the covenant. We'll begin with the substance of the covenant, and for this we're going to look at verses 8 to 11. Genesis 9, 8 to 11. It starts out with God speaking to Noah, verse 8. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. That's where we stop. Okay, this is the substance of the covenant. The first factor about the Noahic covenant, which we notice, is that God himself was the author of it. And he was the 
uh, originator, the initiator of this covenant. God alone established this particular covenant. Now, generally, a covenant is an agreement between two parties or two people or two groups of people. However, this was not the situation with this Noahic covenant. This was what is commonly referred to as an unconditional covenant or a one-way covenant. It can also be referred to as a covenant of promise, because that's indeed what it was, God's promise to man, or a covenant of grace, because it involves, naturally, his grace. All of these terms simply mean that God's promise of this covenant will be fulfilled regardless of what Noah or his sons or any of their descendants, down to you and me, what, regardless of what we do or do not do. God will keep this covenant promise. And God made this very clear to Noah. Remember, Noah needs reassurance, a lot of it. So five times God reiterates this truth in these verses. What's five the number of in the Bible? Does anybody remember? Five is the biblical number for right grace. Whoever said that, Christy, very good. You get an A+. Plus. <laughs> five times. He says, look at verse 9. He says, and I, behold, I establish my covenant with you. Verse 11, and I will establish my covenant. Verse 12, the covenant which I make between me and you. Verse 15, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you. Verse 17, oh, actually, it's not just in these verses. I'm sorry, it goes on to the rest. He says, verse 17, the covenant which I have established. Five times he makes sure that Noah knows this is a covenant, unconditional covenant. God is establishing it. Noah really doesn't have to do anything. He just takes it. Thank you, God. Now, the second factor regarding this covenant is, of course, its recipients. And who were the recipients? Noah and his sons, it says in verse 8. However, the promise would not end with the death of Noah and his sons because verse 9 includes a statement that the covenant promise was also to be with their seed, right? In other words, the Noahic covenant was given to the entire human race because... Noah was the post-flood world's only living father, and therefore all the human race has come from Noah. Now, the wonderful news is that this covenant then is given to every single human being who has ever lived or who will ever live, including, you know, our future yet unborn uh, generations. In fact, God even included, if you look at verse 10, he even included all the creatures who had gone out of the ark with Noah in this covenant. And of course, they were the only creatures on the earth, air breathing. I don't know if the covenant is for the fish and all the marine animals, but probably so also, because they too will never again be destroyed by a, a flood. Well, the next factor that we need to notice about the covenant is the covenant itself. All right, the originator is God, the recipients are Noah and all human beings. The, uh, what is the covenant itself, however, all about? And to answer this, we find that there are three possible parts to this covenant. First of all, the covenant had to do with the coming promised seed of the woman. Remember, he used the word seed when he said it was for Noah and the seed. Right there, we get a little clue because he could have said your descendants, you know. But he's giving us a clue about the seed. And whenever you hear the word seed, who do you automatically think of? The coming seed, the Savior. Back to Genesis 3.15. We always go back to the Proto-Evangelium. The promised seed of the woman, the Messiah. 
So this covenant had to do with the one who would come eventually and bruise, fatally bruise Satan's head. In verse 11, God said, look, read this with me. He said, and I will establish my covenant with you. Now, the Hebrew word for establish literally means I will fulfill, I will carry out, I will continue, I will keep my covenant with you. So God was going to be fulfilling or carrying out his covenant with man. This covenant then that he's talking about, his covenant, seems to refer to a covenant which is already in existence, one that he will carry out, one which he will continue, one which he will fulfill, right? Um, What covenant of God had he already established with man, which he could now promise Noah that he would continue to keep, that he would continue to fulfill? What covenant? Well, at this, huh? Right. At this point in time, we're only in Genesis chapter 9, there has only been one other covenant prior uh, to the existence of Noah. And that was the promise that we've been talking about, the promise of the coming seed which had first been given, the seed of the woman, to man uh, by God, back right after man fell in the garden. And that is known as the Adamic covenant. So that was the only other one in existence. Noah, remember, Noah needed assurance from God at this point in his life. He needed to feel safe and secure. So God was giving Noah the assurance that he needed uh, the most that not only um, was he going to be safe, free from fear of ever again having to to worry about being destroyed by a global catastrophe, but also, more importantly, God was going to, he was giving Noah the assurance that he was going to keep his earlier promise of preserving the messianic line so that the promised seed, the redeemer, could come. And that godly line would be maintained through who? Through Noah himself and through his sons. Noah was the only, or one son in particular, we'll see that when we come back in January, <clears throat> Shem. But it, this godly line, the messianic line through whom Jesus Christ would be born, would come through Noah, the only living father on earth, and therefore the new head of the human race. He was, he's like the second Adam in that regard. You see, God's love is far too great for him not to have reaffirmed to the only living, uh, only surviving father of the human race, the great assurance of salvation. That's what man needs the most, right? The hope for his eternal salvation and the wonderful hope of the coming Savior. Immediately after the fall, remember right after Adam and Eve fell, God gave them this hope, didn't he? I mean, he didn't let them have... too much anxiety worrying about would they ever be restored in their relationship with God because right away he gave Adam and Eve the promise of the coming Redeemer. So it stands to reason that he was including in his covenant promise to Noah right after the flood, immediately after the flood, this same assurance. 
God's words, I will establish or I will fulfill, I will continue, I will carry out my covenant with you, seem to indicate that he was speaking of his covenant of Genesis 3.15 regarding the promised seed of the woman. And a lot of people probably have never thought about that. You know, when you hear about the Noahic covenant, you automatically think, well, God promised we'll never again be destroyed by a flood. But I believe it also includes his promise to continue this prom- the Adam- Adamic covenant that he would indeed send the Savior, the seed of the woman. So when Noah and his sons heard this promise, heard these words, we can be sure that this would have brought them the great security and peace and assurance that they needed. Uh, They needed to know that God had indeed remembered his former promise to Adam and Eve and had chosen and had actually chosen them, Noah and one of his sons, for the tremendous privilege of carrying on the line of the promised Messiah, the coming Savior of the world, whose birth we celebrate at this time of year. So that's one aspect of the Noahic covenant. Secondly, the covenant was God's promise, now given verbally to Noah and his sons, that he would never again destroy the whole earth with a, coming, uh, with a global flood. So this was actually an enlargement of God's original covenant regarding the promised Messiah. You know, he was actually adding on to that covenant, the Adamic covenant. Now he's saying, I will never again destroy the whole world. You see, the Noahic covenant is God's promised assurance of the continuation of both the earth and of man, right? He'll never again destroy the earth. He will never again destroy all life. And, And the reason he needs to do this is so that he can fulfill his promise of the coming seed of the woman. You know, if he destroyed the earth and man, there'd be no one for the Savior to come and save, would there? So he had to, keep, he had to give this addition to the Adamic covenant with the Noahic covenant so that he could send the seed of the woman and there would be someone here to save and there would be an earth for him to come to. Well, in verse 11, God promised that he would never again destroy all flesh by a worldwide flood and that he would never again destroy the earth itself by a worldwide flood. So Noah received all of the assurance that he could possibly have ever needed. Not only would God honor his former covenant with man regarding the one who would ultimately defeat Satan and sin and the world and, and flesh so that man could be saved and have, you know, a renewed relationship with his creator. Not only would God um, do that, but God gave his word that man would never again have to fear a global worldwide catastrophism. In his great wisdom, God knew that Noah and his family and you and I need these assurances in order to continue functioning in life, you know, to function uh, normally and emotionally as, uh, first of all, as they set about establishing their new lives in the new world and also as they went about fulfilling God's will and purpose for man. But we need those assurances too, don't we? We need to remember that God's covenant was not only given to Noah and his family, but it's given to us. So we too can have the same emotional assurance and security that Noah had. And we need that, don't we? Especially living in the day and age that we live in. It's a a pretty scary world out there. 
So we have the assurance, not only, you know, well, we have assurance of salvation. That's the greatest thing of all. If you truly have been born again, if you have realized that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for your sins, that he took those sins upon himself and died and was buried and resurrected on the third day for you, and you have believed that not only in your head up here but in your heart. You know, it's not just head knowledge. It has to be heart knowledge that you truly believe that. And you have asked him to be your Lord and Savior. You realize he is Lord. You don't have to ask him to be Lord. He is Lord. And, uh, and you've asked him to come into your heart and your life and you've surrendered to him. Then you are truly his child. You have been born again. And that's the greatest assurance that we can have. That's what keeps me going. I don't know about you, but that's the only thing some days that keeps me going is knowing that one day I'm going to spend eternity with my Lord and Savior. And I really, nothing this world, you know, throws at me can, can uh, ever take that joy away from me and that peace. But, they, but we also need to have uh, security as we live here in this world. And so we have it because of the Noahic covenant. He will never again destroy this world, the whole world. No matter how explosive the world situation might get, no matter how frightening things might get, you know, with all that they have now with nuclear uh, warfare, we will never be annihilated totally by a nuclear war. I think if, when the world, when, when this sort of thing happens, we'll, we'll be out of here because there will, a lot of this will happen during the tribulation. But even then, he will never destroy the whole world. Um, we don't have to worry about germ warfare, bacteria warfare, which will kill off everybody. We don't need to worry about the ozone layer, kind of a global catastrophe from outer space or some kind of a natural disaster that will totally wipe out the world because we have God's promise. We, if we trust in his word, we can rest in peace and comfort knowing that never again while the earth remains, remember that back in verse 22? of chapter 8, the promise is only good as long as the earth remains. At the end of the millennial kingdom, this earth will be burned up, and then he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. So as long as this earth remains, God will never again destroy all life um, or the earth itself, as he did at the flood. And so also, if we believe God's word, like Noah, we have the assurance of the promised Redeemer, who, of course, from our place in history has already come, right? From Noah's, he had to look forward to the coming Redeemer. He had to have faith in the fact that he would come. From our perspective, we look back on the cross and we have to believe that he did come. And he, of course, is the one who saves us from having to pay the penalty of sin ourselves, which is, of course, death, meaning eternal separation from God. Well, God gave the substance of his covenant with man, and then he proceeded to tell him that he would give a very special token or sign. And the, the Hebrew word is literally oath, O-T-H, for token. It also means sign. Same word is translated as sign back in Genesis 1.14. Actually, it's the same word when it spoke about God putting a mark on Cain. It's the same word for mark. So he would put a token, a sign, or a mark in the sky, and this was to be a uh, continuous reminder to man of God's covenant promise. Not only that he would never again destroy the whole world with a flood, but what else is the sign to remind us of now that we just learned this? Of the seed of the woman, capital S, the Savior. 
Every time Noah and his descendants before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ would look at that sign in the sky, they were to think of the fact that God would fulfill his covenant promise of the coming seed of the woman, the coming Savior. Now, as we look back on that sign, I mean, you know, we look at that sign, we think back to the fact that the Savior did come. So remember that, because this is a new aspect on this sign. And what is this sign? Rainbow. So we're going to discuss now the sign of the covenant, the beautiful rainbow. Let's look at verses 12 to 17. And God said, this is the token. That's the little word oath, O-T-H, means sign, token, or mark. This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters which no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. You see what I mean when I say repetition? It says it over and over again that he was establishing this covenant between himself and man and all living creatures. Well, the first thing that we learn about the sign of God's covenant promise to Noah and his family and descendants is that it was to be a sign not only for Noah and his immediate family, but it was to be assigned to all generations of people. God said it was to be for perpetual generations. You see that in the end of verse 12. The rainbow is God's perpetual reminder of his covenant regarding the promised seed of the woman and concerning his promise to never again destroy the whole world and all life on the world by a flood. Now, the fact that God gave this sign to back up his word, his promise, his covenant, seems to indicate just how needy Noah and his family had been. They truly, truly seem to need to have uh, this repeated assurance from God that not only uh, um, would they be secure here on earth, but they would be secure eternally in the future. By the token of the beautiful rainbow, God was in, in essence saying to them, he says, you, you have seen the horrendous effect of sin in the outpouring of my wrath upon it, upon sin. And I know that it's ugly. God is saying this in essence. I know it's ugly, but that is because sin is so very ugly. However, I want to reassure you, Noah, that there will never again be another global flood. And as a sign of that promise, of my promise to you, And to all perpetual generations, I put my bow in the sky as my promised pledge. We can feel sure that the rainbow, which Noah would have never seen before, he'd never seen rain before, remember, until the flood. He would never have seen the rainbow before. You can just imagine the first time he said that, saw it, I'm sure it probably appeared in the sky just as God was giving him this promise that that must have really ministered to his soul. 
I mean, when you look at a rainbow, doesn't it minister to your soul? Doesn't it really speak of the Creator? You know, even if you didn't understand all that that is involved in the Noahic covenant, just looking at a rainbow just gives you some kind of reassurance that there is a wonderful God up there in heaven. So I'm sure it ministered to the souls of Noah and his family. Sin may have resulted in that which was ugly and terrifying, but God, we have to remember, is a God of beauty also. And he was saying to both Noah and, his, and all future generations, I know that because of sin, life is full of tragedy. I know that there are many, many heartbreaks. And there's a lot of ugliness in this world that we live in. And yet I am able to overcome all of these negative things because ultimately I am a God of beauty. I created all things to be beautiful. Remember at the end of the creation week, he looked at everything and he said it was what? Very good. And he says, one day when I have called all my own into my eternal presence, all things will again and eternally be beautiful. Isn't that a wonderful thing to, when you see a rainbow, think of that. One day, all the ugliness, all the heartbreak, all the tears, the tragedy, the trauma that we have encountered in this life will be over and it will be forgotten and we will live in a world of total beauty and peace and love and harmony and everything wonderful you can think of. It will again be very good. So everything you're going through now is just temporary. Keep your focus on that. It is just temporary. Nothing will last forever except the eternal state of beauty and wonder with our great God. Now, you know, those who have that uniformitarian mindset that we've been talking about, you know, that all things continue as they have from the very beginning, they will generally tell you, if you read their commentaries, they will say that the rainbow existed before the flood, that it existed in the antediluvian world. And, of course, these are the same people who hold to a local flood um, concept, you know, that it wasn't a global flood, that it was just regional. But uh, the fact of the matter is that the bow in the cloud, which is the way the King James terms it, the rainbow, actually requires two factors before it can be formed, right? You all know this. It's very simple science. You learned it back in, what, second grade? (coughs) Before you can have a rainbow, you have to have sunlight and you have to have the cloud, which is liquid water droplets in the air. Well, before the flood, there was only invisible water vapor in the upper air. There were not clouds of liquid water droplets. There was only water vapor, not liquid water droplets. So no pre-flood rainbows were possible. You cannot have a rainbow with just water vapor. You have to have water droplets. However, with that former water vapor canopy, you know, that went around the earth, with it gone and with the new hydrological cycle in effect in the post-flood world, 
it was and of course is possible for rainbows to appear after a rainstorm just you know as the sun is beginning to come out and the clouds are depleted of almost all their water but not quite or you know it may even still usually it's still raining lightly when you see the rainbow and the and the sunlight hits through those water droplets liquid water droplets and we see the rainbow so the fossils within the rocks you know in the sedimentary layers of our earth's crust they are a continual reminder to those who have eyes to see that god did intervene in human history with a catastrophe uh, catastrophe you know a worldwide flood judgment against sin so as the fossils do that also the rainbow after the storm stands as another reminder to those who again have eyes willing to see that he will never do so again right so we have two testimonies that he did send a worldwide flood we have one the fossil record that says he did send it the other the rainbow says he will never do it again and also that he keeps his promise regarding the savior the coming one of course that promise one Jesus Christ has already come but the rainbow should repeatedly every time we see one it should repeat, repeatedly perpetually remind us of his victory over sin over satan over the the world over the flesh and the fact that one day he will complete uh his redemptive work with regard to the earth itself you know when he comes back and re- removes the curse a lot of the curse that was placed in Genesis chapter 3 a lot of it will be removed during the millennial kingdom uh he will reverse the curse on um on nature and on the animals and uh of course after the millennial kingdom kingdom he will completely remove the curse because it won't completely be redone re- removed in the millennial kingdom but it will in the eternal state He will complete his judgment then of course against Satan once and for all after the millennial kingdom when Satan is loosed out of the bottomless pit and then the Lord once and for all defeats him and casts him into the eternal lake of fire and he will vanquish him there forever and ever and ever and he will never again be released. Now not only was the rainbow to be seen by man but God said what verse is that I think is it 16 He said that he himself yeah verse 16 that he himself would look upon it and when he did he would remember the everlasting covenant which he had made between himself and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Now it's not of course we talked about this was it last week or two weeks ago it's not that God ever actually forgets anything. You know when it said God remembered Noah it wasn't that he had forgotten Noah. Oh yeah, I forgot about you down there, you know, in that little boat. He never forgets anything and of course he did not forget his covenant promise. But what this means is that he especially remembers the judgment of the flood and his covenant promise with Noah and his descendants when he sets his bow in the cloud, verse 13. Actually, the rainbow for man is a sign that God does remember his covenant promise. What these rainbow verses in Genesis 9 are actually telling us is that when we look at a beautiful rainbow in the sky, our heavenly father, now think about this next time you see a rainbow. We're looking up at it, but our heavenly father is also looking at it from heaven. He said that. He said, "I look upon it." So when you're looking at it, he is also looking down upon it. 
Therefore, what does the rainbow become? Right. Again, we had like the ark was a bridge between the old world and the new world. Well, the rainbow serves as a bridge. It's shaped just like a bridge, isn't it? It's like a bridge between uh, linking God with man. So remember that, too. When you're looking at it, he also says he is looking at it. And actually, our eyes then are making contact with God. It's a bridge that brings us together. Also, as we behold a rainbow in the sky, we should remember the flood itself and how terrifying the wrath of God against ungodliness is. In particular, we should remember that we can escape his final wrath against all ungodliness, which will be at the great white throne judgment. We can do this, of course, by turning to that promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior of man. No, he is not just a way to God. He is the way, the one and only way to God. So really, the rainbow should provoke us to remember and think about the mercy of God towards sinful man. Because rainbows are universal, meaning, you know, they are visible to all men regardless of where they live. You don't have to live on one side of the earth to see one. You don't have to live uh, in, the, in the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere. You don't have to live in America or you don't have to live in Siberia or the South Pole. Wherever you live, you can see a rainbow. They're uh, universal. Furthermore, guess what? They are totally free. You don't have to pay a cent to see one. Free for all men, just like the stars in the skies, free for men to look upon. And so, too, is God's mercy and forgiveness available to all men, right? No matter where they live, regardless of their race, their nationality, their age, their sex, their social status, their education level, whatever, it's free to all men. And also God's grace and forgiveness and mercy are absolutely free, just like the rainbow, because... Because Jesus Christ paid the price for it in full. Well, speaking of God's mercy and forgiveness should cause us to also think of God's grace, which is something else that the rainbow pictures. A rainbow, as I said earlier, is caused by the sunlight filtering through the water in the atmosphere. Each drop of water becomes a prism to release colors which are hidden in the white light of the sun. The colors which make up our world are merely the manifold beauty of light itself. Remember, we've talked about light last year in our creation study, and what a actually, it's a real mystery still to mankind, to science, the world of science, what light is. The pure ray of light, which seems to us to be colorless, you know, as we see the light that just makes everything visible. We don't see any color in the light itself. It seems to be colorless. In reality, it is the harmonious blending of all colors. The primary light ray is actually just like the creator himself, a trinity in unity. You know, God is a trinity in unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but he's still one God. Light is just like that. Light is also a trinity, a light ray I'm talking about. It's a trinity in unity. It's one light ray, but it's actually made up of three colors, blue, 
red, and yellow. And it's from these three colors that all other colors are produced. The color of any object is based upon its capacity to absorb the rest of the colors. So, uh, for example, if an object absorbs, a lot of you are wearing red today. I'd say the, the bulk of it, the, when I look out, mostly what I see today here is a lot of red, red, obviously, because that speaks of Christmas, right? And red is, if, if an object absorbs blue and yellow, the other triune members of the light ray, um, it will appear red. So your thing is not really red, it's just that it's absorbing blue and yellow. So it appears to be red. And if it absorb, if it, if an object absorbs red and yellow, the object will appear blue. So Doris, you've got blue on. You're not really wearing blue. You're just, your object is absorbing red and yellow. So it appears to be blue. This is so confusing to me, but this is what I read in the books. <laughs> now, if it absorbs only red, it will appear green. Who has green on today? Anita, okay, you're absorbing only red. So actually, in a way, you're more red than the rest of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Peggy, too. So light is what gives all nature its color and beauty. For example, if we turned all the lights off and covered up all the windows and it was total pitch black in here, would there be any color? No, there wouldn't be any color. It would just be, it's light which gives this world color. Yet the light ray itself, in all its fullest beauty, we can only see when it is broken up, such as it is in a rainbow. The scripture now tells us that God himself is what? Light. And it also says that he is the father of lights in James 1.17. So just like light, of course he's the creator. And we saw this, remember last year, how many things are just like him? Even us, we're triune, except we're, we're trinity and unity, body, soul, and spirit, yet we're one person. And we saw that with so much of his creation. I won't take the time to repeat all those things, but if you weren't here, get some of those studies from Genesis chapter 1, because it's fascinating to see how he um, just repeats his own nature over and over again in his creation. But he, like the light that he created, is a trinity in unity, and in his unbroken unity we cannot behold him can we you know god the triune godhead we cannot behold it says that in first timothy 6 16 however when he reveals his glory in partial displays then we are able to perceive them such as when he displayed his glory at the cross when he displays his glory through his son, Jesus Christ, when he displays his glory through the creation, then we can behold him. The lovely colors of the rainbow seen when the solar rays reflect themselves in the aftermath of the storm clouds speak to us then of the manifold grace of God, 1 Peter 4.10. You know, the Greek word for manifold, think of that. What does that mean? It means Many colored, the many colored grace of God. So when we look at the rainbow, we should be reminded of God's covenant of grace and the many colored or the manifold grace of God. 
So if the rainbow speaks of God's mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, and his faithfulness to remember his promises, then should we as Christians be worried about the storms of life? Should we? You know, even when the even when the sky grows dark and the sun is hidden in our little world and the storms rage around us, whatever we might be going through in our various trials and tribulations, we really ultimately have nothing to fear because God has promised that the storms will never destroy us. Just think of the rainbow and think of some of these promises. What did he say in Isaiah 43, 2? He said, when thou passest through the waters, I will be where? With thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Remember, he promises he will never give us uh, anything to endure that is greater than we can bear. He will always give us an away, a way of escape. Sometimes that way of escape is by just taking us into his presence. And what did he say? We all know this one, Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art where? Up there in heaven? Apathetic about my problems? No, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, another interesting truth to remember is that the rainbow is called, what in the scripture? A bow, which is an instrument of war, right? Think of a bow. God has every right to have turned his bow of judgment on us. Which way should that bow be facing? You know, down toward us, because each of us has broken his commandments, and each of us deserves his judgment. However, the rainbow is faced which way? Up that way. And it has no arrow, because God has already discharged that arrow into the person of his son, who was pierced through for whose transgressions? Our transgressions. Now, it was, of course, because of God's foreknowledge of the finished work of Christ upon the cross that he could give men the assurance of his Noahic covenant promise. He couldn't have given this promise if he did not know, he knows the end from the beginning, if he did not know that his son would be willing to come to earth and to live a sinless life and to die, complete that work for us. So based upon his foreknowledge that God, that Christ would finish that work, he could give this covenant promise. So God, in placing the rainbow in the sky, has transformed an instrument of war into a picture of his grace. And it serves as a guarantee of peace. So next time you look at a rainbow, think of that too. That it's like an instrument of war, but it's not pointed at us. It's pointed toward heaven, and the arrow has already been spent. And it was spent in his son. Remember when that spear passed through his side? Think of that as the arrow that came out of the rainbow. Now, as I mentioned, the rainbow is produced when storm clouds are joined with sunshine. God's grace is the sunshine of his unmerited favor, which appears on the black background, the storm black background of man's sin. Just as a rainbow is produced when the sun shines on the water drops in a rain cloud, so was God's grace manifested when his love shone through 
the shed blood by Christ as he hung in the darkness. Remember, which we, three hours of darkness, which just began to lift when his redemptive work was complete. After he died, then the sun came out. <clears throat> as a rainbow also is a union between heaven and earth, so too is the grace of Jesus Christ, the mediator who brought God and man together. <clears throat> the union, he too is the union between heaven and earth. So the rainbow, <clears throat> excuse me, is another way of learning the truth that in wrath, God remembers what? Mercy. In his wrath, he always remembers mercy. And that glory follows suffering. First the cross, and then the crown. First the storm, and then the rainbow. First the suffering for Christ and the persecution for his name's sake, and then the glory in heaven. And it's also his reminder that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Now, in conclusion, I keep looking at my wrist and I don't have a watch on. What time is it? Okay, ooh, this was going to be short. is isn't short. <laughs> in conclusion, it's worth pointing out that the rainbow only appears four times in the word of God. Noah, in Genesis 9, saw the rainbow after the storm, right? Make a mark of that. After the storm, Genesis 9. Just remember it. It's in your notes. By the way, your homework, your, your Christmas present from me is no homework over the Christmas holidays. And your notes also are short. That's another gift of my mercy. <laughs> so he saw this, the rainbow after the storm. In Revelation 4, 3, the rainbow is seen around the throne of God. Those of you who were with us when we studied Revelation, you will remember this. That rainbow appears in the midst of the storm because it occurred in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, another time the rainbow appears in the scripture is in Ezekiel 1.28. And there the rainbow is seen surrounding the throne of God before the storm as God was preparing to judge his nation Israel, his people, Israel. So what is the lesson for us to remember? So we look at these times the rainbows mentioned in scripture, at least these three. The lesson for us to remember is that in the storms of life, we can always look for the rainbow of God's covenant promise of assurance and peace and safety for those who have trusted in his son, the one who has made possible the fulfillment of God's covenant with Adam and then with Noah. We may see the rainbow of this sure hope and comfort when, before the storm hits, we may see it, you know, and that might be what takes us through the storm. We might get a hold of God's promise to us, the assurance that we have of salvation in his son. We might get hold of that before the storm, and that's what will carry us through the storm. We may not see it until the middle of the storm. Or we may not see it until Noah at the end of the storm. But if we have the eyes of faith, we will always see somewhere along the line the rainbow of God's promise. In fact, the fourth, remember I said the rainbow is mentioned four times in the scripture. 
the fourth and last time that a rainbow is mentioned in the Bible is in Revelation 10, verse 1, where the Lord Jesus Christ, you may remember this, is described as a mighty angel. And he comes to claim his rightful dominion over this earth, which belongs to him not only by way of his right of, uh, um, by way of creation, but also by way of redemption. He is going to take dominion from Satan, who has, ever since Adam, usurped man's dominion over this world. And at that time, Christ will be accompanied, we are told, in Revelation 10, verses 3 and 4. You looked this up in homework not too long ago. We are told that when he comes at that time, he's accompanied by seven thunders of judgment, which seemingly, we discussed, cried forth also at the time of the flood, the seven thunders of judgment. However, rather, when Christ comes and we see him as the mighty angel... In Revelation 10.1, this time, rather than wearing the crown of thorns, which he wore on his head when he gave his life as a ransom for many, the Apostle John tells us that the second time he comes to take dominion of this world, there will be a rainbow on his head. Not the crown of thorns, but a rainbow. And it says, the rainbow. In the Greek, you know, it emphasizes the word the. The rainbow will be on his head. Well, the rainbow can only speak of God's bow or token, the sign of his everlasting covenant between himself and all flesh. So ultimately, after all the storms of life, we will behold the the very one who made the covenant promise with Adam and Eve, first of all, and then with Noah, and who is, in fact, the very fulfillment himself of the covenant promise. There above his head will once again be the sign or the token of his mercy, his manifold grace, his many-colored grace, his forgiveness, his comfort, his assurance, his love, and his peace, which will belong then to every child of the king forever and ever. We'll be able to look at that rainbow around the throne of God, and then it will be what? a complete rainbow, and we will not only see it around the throne of God, but we will see it around the head of our Savior. So we could say that the rainbow is God's picture in the sky of Romans 8.28, that all things will ultimately work together for good to those who love God. So will you promise me that every time you see a rainbow, you will think of all these additional things now? I know I will. I've learned a lot about the rainbow, and I can't wait to see the next one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your manifold grace in sending your Son. Father, we just cannot thank you enough for the the word of God, which I don't know where we'd be without it, because... There's no way to know you apart from your precious word. Thank you for giving it to us so that we may not only know you now in this life, but that we can know you throughout all of eternity, which I'm sure we will spend getting to know you even deeper and in many, many more ways because there is no end to to your person. Father, I thank you for these women. I pray we will have a wonderful time of fellowship at the 
luncheon. I pray everyone will be able to attend and that your presence will be felt there. Thank you for those who have been working so diligently to set up, and thank you for those who prepared the food, and we just pray that you will be exalted and honored in everything we do over there. We, th- we pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.